You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. So when we hear the Bible, when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 26, verses 1 to 33. So I'll be reading from the CSB version. Uh, Please follow along in your own Bibles, and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. There was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had already occurred in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, at Gerar. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien, and I will be with you and bless you. For I will give you all these lands to you and your offspring, and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. Because Abraham listened to me and kept my mandate, my commands, my statutes, and my instructions. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking, the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. When Isaac had been there for some time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from the window and was surprised to see Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Abimelech sent for Isaac and said, so she is really your wife. How could you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might die on account of her. And then Abimelech said, what have you done to us? One of the people could easily have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech warned all the people, whoever harms this man or his wife will certainly be put to death. Isaac sowed seed in that land, and in that year he reaped a hundred times what was sown. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and kept getting richer until he was very wealthy. He had flocks of sheep, herds of cattle, and many slaves, and the Philistines were envious of him. Philistines stopped up all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, filling them with dirt. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Leave us, for you are much too powerful for us. So Isaac left there, camped in the Gerar Valley, and lived there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, and that the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. He gave them the same names his father had given them. Then Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of spring water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they argued with him. Then they dug another well and quarreled over that one also, 
so he named it Sitna. He moved from there and dug another, and they did not quarrel over it. He named it Rehoboth and said, For now the Lord has made space for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there, called on the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. Isaac's servants also dug a well there. Now Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me? You hated me and sent me away from you. They replied, We have clearly seen how the Lord has been with you. We think there should be an oath between two parties, between us and you. Let us make a covenant with you. You will not harm us, just as we have not harmed you, but have done only what was good to you, sending you away in peace. You are now blessed by the Lord. So he prepared a banquet for them, and they ate and drank. They got up early in the morning and swore an oath to each other. Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. On that same day, Isaac's servants came to tell him about the well they had dug, saying to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is still Beersheba today. Friends, it's good to be back again. Um, thank you for all of you, uh, for all of you guys who call Cross and Crown Home. You've been so kind uh, to me, letting me go on leave for the last few weeks has been a lot of fun. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, I went to Japan, believe it or not, for the first time. Uh, it was... Um, it almost felt like a homecoming of sorts, but not quite. Uh, it, there was just so many things to do there. I thought things would be a little bit cheaper than they were, but still really worth it. Still really, really worth it. So if you haven't been before, make sure you get along at some point. It's a, it's a great place, a place deeply in need of the gospel. Uh, but at the same time, uh, go there, have their... Um, I had a... They call it meronpan, which is like a melon bread that they toast on the outside and they put a slab of matcha ice cream in the middle. Very, very good. So give that a shot. Uh, there's a few other things that are worth trying. There's a, a yakitori alley in Japan that's really nice. Um, but I have to admit, the thing that I wasn't quite sure about whether I'd do or not, though I did in the end, uh, I, I went to an onsen. It was so good. Like, it was great. It was probably one of the greatest highlights of my trip. I went to that onsen alone, uh, and, and, you know, like, uh, what, what happens in Japan stays in Japan. And, you know, it was when we were at a ryokan in Hakone, and I remember sitting there in the steaming heat, looking out at a picturesque landscape. It, it was actually really special, right? Because how often do you get to hit the pause button on life and be unburdened by life's problems? unburdened by the challenges of ministry, unburdened by clothing. And, and it, was, it was almost this existential moment of self-reflection. You just kind of soak there, stare at it and go, who am I? <laughs> Why am I here? Where's God leading me in life? It sounds ridiculous, but actually it's a really nice thing. Sleep and Sabbath are acts of worship. They, they help remind us that we're not God. 
that we're not machines, that we don't have to work to keep the world spinning. God doesn't sleep, so we can. Rest is an act of humility. And they are moments where you get to sit back and ask those big questions. In fact, I decided on my holiday that I would read Ecclesiastes as the book on my leave. Not because it's depressing, but because it reminds us of our humanity. It reminds us of who we are. In fact, some of the guys um, at the Airbnb on a Sunday night, we had our own little service, and we were reflecting on Ecclesiastes 3 and 4 together. And it was really special to ask that fundamental question, who are we? You know, John Calvin, the great 16th century reformer, said, the two most important questions you can ever answer are who is God and who are we? Who is God and who are we? This is what he writes, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and ourselves. They're the two most important questions in life. And I want to say those two questions are answered in the book of Genesis. You see, Genesis is the prequel to the story of humanity, the first chapter of history. And it answers those two questions with these two answers. We are great sinners, but God is a great saviour. We are great sinners, but God is a greater saviour. That's who we are, and that's who God is. In Genesis 1 to 3, think about it. We rebelled against the God of life. But in his grace, he spared us the judgment of immediate death. In Genesis 4 to 11, we descended into a hellhole of sin. But in his grace, God promised to save us through the seed of Abraham. And in Genesis 12 to 25, Abraham never fully trusted God's promise. But in his grace, God stayed faithful even when we don't. Time and time and time again, we find that same answer repeated. We are great sinners, but God is our greater saviour. I almost want to say that if Genesis 12 to 25, there God proves that we can trust him, even against the inescapability of death, God brings life out of a barren womb, then now over the next 10 weeks, as we look at chapters 26 to 36, in the life of Isaac, in the life of Abraham's son, God proves that we can trust him even against our own sin. Even against our own serial sinfulness, God is a greater saviour. Let me just frame it for you from the outset. No one in these chapters, comes out looking very good. No one. In fact, all of them, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau, Laban and Rachel, they're like mirrors to our souls. They're like visual answers to that question, who are we? And the answer's not pretty. But in many ways, they set up the answer to the even bigger question, who is God? You see, friends, these chapters tell us this simple but profound and wonderful truth that when we were at our worst, God gave us his best. That's what we see in verses 1 to 6. 
in an all-too-familiar crisis. And look with me at verse 1. There was another famine in the land in addition to the one that had occurred in Abraham's time. Just, just stop there and think about that. Isaac and Rebekah face a crisis. But it's not just any crisis. No, it's the same crisis that Abraham, his father, faced all the way back in Genesis 12. But remember what happened. Abraham had just had the most life-changing moment. God had just promised him. He said, Abraham, one day I'm going to save the world through your offspring. This is a promise that will change human history forever. And then God tells him, go out from your land to the land that I will show you. He pretty much tells Abraham in Genesis 12, trust my promise and go where I lead. Trust my promise and go where I lead. But here's the irony of what happens. As soon as Abraham receives that life-changing promise, famine strikes. Crisis hits. Now, now, just think about this, right? We need to think about and realize just how serious this is. In that day and age, actually, even in many, of our pla- many places in our world today, Famine isn't just any crisis. Famine's a death warrant. It doesn't simply mean that the price of avocados goes up and you can't have brunch for less than 30 bucks. No, famine meant starvation. Famine meant death. Abraham and Sarah would have been so afraid, and in many ways, who could blame them? In that moment when you're at risk of losing absolutely everything, you hit the panic button. You look at your wife or your husband and you say, you know what? Forget God's promise. (laughs) Forget he said he'd provide for us. Crisis has hit. We need to look after ourselves now. And that's exactly what Abraham did. Instead of going to the land that God promised him, what did he and Sarah do? They fled to Egypt. They're the great superpower of their world. They didn't trust God's promise. Instead, what they did was they trusted great, but far lesser powers in this world. That's what happened all the way back in Genesis 12. And now God says to Isaac, now God says to Abraham's son, now God says to the son who faces the exact same situation as his father, don't go down to Egypt. Live in the land that I'll tell you about. Stay in this land as an alien and I will be with you and bless you. Don't do what your father did. Don't make the same mistake. He fled it to and trusted in Egypt, but I want you to stay here and trust me. And if you do what your dad didn't do, if you're faithful in the area where he was faithless, If you learn from that past mistake and do what is right now, I'll be with you. I'll bless you. I promise. That the promise I made to your father is the promise I'll extend to you. I'll confirm the oath that I swore to your father, Abraham. That's exactly what God does. Just look in verses 4 to 5. God repeats the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17. He reiterates and reminds him, I'm going to give you a family so big that it will bless the whole world. 
So don't worry about this famine. Don't worry about the crisis. You think your life's at an end, but my promise is your life's only just begun. Can you hear what God is telling Isaac in this all too familiar crisis? Look back. Look back at Abraham and see my faithfulness. Abraham's name is mentioned eight times in this chapter. Eight times. Eight times so that Isaac is almost forced to look back and see everything that God promised his dad. Every way in which God kept that promise. God wants Isaac to look back in this all too familiar crisis and see God saved my father from famine. Surely he'll save me as well. But I want to say that actually Isaac can look back on so much more than that. He could look back on the moment that God saved his uncle Lot. He could look back on the moment that God made his mum pregnant with him, miraculously. Think about it. Isaac should be able to even look back on the moment when God spared his life, when he provided a sacrificial lamb in his place. It's almost as if God wants Isaac to look back and he should be able to say, Lord God, years ago you saved my father in the Egyptian famine. Now I beg you to help me in my struggle. This is my most desperate hour. Help me, Lord God. You're my only hope. You see, if Isaac could look back and see God's faithfulness in his father's life, can't we look back and see that faithfulness in the lives of so many more people? Shouldn't we be able to look back and see God's faithfulness, not only in Abraham's life, but in the life of Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and Solomon? Shouldn't we be able to look back and see God's faithfulness in the life of Jesus? Jesus, the seed of Abraham who shares God's blessings of promise with the world. Jesus, in whom every one of God's promises is yes. Jesus, who saved us out of sin and death. Jesus, who defeated evil and darkness. Jesus, who reconciled us with God forever in the all too familiar crises that make us feel as if our lives are over. We have a hope far more familiar and far greater than Isaac ever did. You see, Isaac could look back at his father, but we can look back at God's son. And if we're honest, Many of us can even look back on our own lives and we can see all those moments and instances where God was kind and caring and loving. We can think about those crises which felt so fatal in the moment. But looking back, we realize they were opportunities for us to experience the comfort of God. You know, all of us are going to come up against crises so great. Christ is so existential that it will feel like our lives are falling apart. If you haven't experienced it yet, don't worry, you will. Relationships that break down. Sicknesses that afflict us. 
or the slow and silent sense that our life is going nowhere and our future is slipping through our fingers. And in all those all-too-familiar crises, when we feel like we're at the end of our rope, God says to Isaac, look back at Abraham. And he says to us, look back at Jesus. See how faithful I've been. Trust my promise and I will bless you. I mean, that's God's amazing word into this all-too-familiar crisis. But what we find next is a tragically familiar response. A tragically familiar response. You see, Isaac, he does well in one sense. He doesn't go down to Egypt. He stays in Gerar. But what he does in Gerar is tragically familiar to any of us who have read Genesis. Look at verse 7. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, my wife, thinking, the men of the place will kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is a beautiful woman. Well, with a husband like that, I mean, I think you're a beautiful woman, so beautiful, I'm just going to call you my sister instead. It's tragic enough that Isaac lies about his wife. It's tragic enough that he puts her in danger to protect himself. It's tragic enough that he's so afraid just moments after God promised to protect him. But you know what makes this more tragic than anything else? Is that this is exactly the sin of his father. When Abraham went down to Egypt in Genesis 12, what did he say about Sarah or to Sarah, his wife? Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Sound familiar? When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife. They'll kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister. <laughs> so it will go well for me because of you. And my life will be spared on your account. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? But I want you to realize this isn't something Abraham did just once. Now, if you fast forward eight chapters to Genesis 20... Abraham tells the very same lie about Sarah to Abimelech of Gerar. Even worse, we find out, this is something that Abraham has been doing over and over and over again from the very moment he first received God's promise. You see, Abraham is a serial sinner. He's repeating and returning to that one sin he cannot kill, the habit he cannot kick throughout his whole life, gripped by fear. Abraham took out a lifelong insurance policy against God and he was making his wife pay the premium for him. Abraham just didn't trust that God would look after him. And here's the tragedy. Neither does his son. Gosh, this really is like father-like son. You see, Isaac was supposed to look back on his dad's life. He was supposed to see, oh, wow, God has been so faithful to him. But instead of learning from his father's sin, he makes it his own. Notice, he speaks the very same words, she is my sister. He's driven by the very same motivation, the men of the place will kill me. And it's almost comical to be tragic. He lies to the very same person, if not his successor. 
Abimelech of Gerar. I feel sorry for Abimelech, don't you? I mean, the guy can't catch a break. You go to the, oh, not this again, right? Like, this is a tragically familiar response, not only for Isaac, though. If we're honest, it's actually a tragically familiar response for you and me. Just think of all the times, all the times we look back and we look at God's faithfulness. Think about all the times we've enjoyed and experienced His forgiveness. And yet, we return to the same old sins over and over and over again. It's almost as if we're hardwired to sin. Proverbs says it's almost like we're a dog who returns to its vomit as a fool repeats his foolishness. It's almost like we've got this terminal fear in our hearts that God won't bless us. This anxiety that God won't protect us. This this terror that God is not enough for us. And it's tragic because... For all the times we look back and see just how faithful God has been, still for some reason, we refuse to trust Him. So we keep going back to those same old sins in a vain attempt to protect ourselves. Somewhere in our hearts, we don't believe that God's enough. Somewhere in our hearts, we don't believe that God will bless us. Somewhere in our hearts, we don't believe that God will provide for us. And then we say, if God won't do it for me, I guess I'll have to do it for myself. And there's the tragedy, because it's something we can't do for ourselves. Many of you will know that uh, for the uh, you know, occasional ways in which the Lord has gifted me, uh, athletic uh, ability is not one of them. Uh, but I want you to, for, uh, just for a moment to imagine playing a basketball game. Somehow, let's imagine me playing a basketball game. Let's make this interesting. Uh, somehow, in some way, the ball is in my hands. I start driving it down the court. I'm still outside the three-point line when two players from the other team get in my way like a six-foot wall of defense. Out of the corner of my eye, I see an opening, and I hear my friend shout, Adam, I'm open. Just pass it off. But in that moment... I think to myself, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. I can do this. I can do this. So I take the shot and I miss. Now, after the game, we sit there feeling a bit depressed. We just got smashed. And and my friend asked me, look, mate, Adam, why didn't you pass it to me? And I I just say something like, oh, you know, like my bad. I I just choked. It's not what I meant to say. What I meant to say was, I didn't trust you. I was afraid that if I passed it to you, you'd drop the ball. That's why I took the shot. But you see the irony, don't you? It's precisely in failing to trust him that I'm the one who dropped the ball, that I'm the one who lost the game. Now, I know you're sitting there going, Adam, you don't understand. They're useless right? You have no idea how bad they are. If I passed it to them, I know we got smashed, but we'd have been trounced and just kicked out of the league. But I want you to know, maybe true, Jesus is not that friend. Look at him. See his player record. He's never missed a shot, never received a foul, never lost a point, never lost a game. 
I'm not asking you to trust your friend. Maybe that's the wise thing you do. I'm asking you to trust the Lord. And yet, just like Isaac, we have this tragically familiar response every single time. I don't trust him. It's as if we're terminally incapable of trusting God. So we return to the same old sins. It's comical, right? You know the feeling, don't you? When you say something unkind in a group simply to be funny and accepted by your friends. Guilty as charged. You go home, in the quietness of your heart, this is what you think. Gosh, I hate myself. So, why do I say stuff like that? And then in a moment of self-reflection, you think, isn't it enough that God accepts me that I shouldn't have to be cruel or unkind to be accepted by others? But the next day comes, and you go straight back to it. And you say the same unkind things all over again. When you stay in that relationship that you know doesn't honor the Lord, but the reason why you're in it, you know, is because you don't think that God's love is enough. You know it's wrong. You know that it breaks God's heart. You resolve to leave the relationship, to honor the Lord, but as soon as the phone rings, what do you do? You run straight back to it. Friends, we're serial sinners. Living in a groundhog day of faithlessness, trapped in a toxic relationship with fear that God is not enough. And just like Isaac, we have this tragically familiar response to God. And when we don't trust him with our lives, surprise, surprise, we muck it up. And that's what happens to Isaac. Look, in verse 8, Abimelech sees Isaac, gosh, caressing his wife, and, and he, quite understandably, he freaks out. Oh, not this again. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. What have you done to us? One of the people could have easily slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. Isaac was meant to be someone who brought blessing, but here he is bringing a curse and guilt. I don't know about you, friends. When you see Isaac's tragically familiar response, I know that I see this horrific reflection of my own serially sinful heart. I see a reflection of all the sins that I cannot break, all the sins I cannot leave. And the great temptation for me is to think, God's got to be done with me. There's no way he'll take me back. I might as well stay away from him. But I want you to know this. In spite of our tragically familiar response, we see an astoundingly faithful God. An astoundingly faithful God. Read verses 12 to 13. Isaac sowed seed in that land, and in that year, he reaped a hundred times what was sown. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich, and kept getting richer until he was very wealthy. You see, friends, after everything Isaac has done, God blesses him in superabundant grace. He blesses Isaac so much that the Philistines envy him, that they even try to stop him from getting richer by filling up his wells with dirt. 
If you jump down to verses 26 to 33, we then see this almost 180 turnaround of Isaac's fortunes. Right, remember, at the beginning of the chapter, Isaac went to Abimelech. But look now, verse 26, Abimelech comes to Isaac. Isaac once sought protection from Abimelech, but now in verse 29, Abimelech seeking protection from him. And where Isaac and Rebekah once faced the existential threat of famine, now in verse 30, we've moved from famine to feasting. You see, friends, Isaac has been the ratbag and rascal of all people that you could imagine. In spite of his tragically familiar response, what we find now is that God blesses Isaac beyond measure. And do you know what I feel? When I read just how bad Isaac has been and how astoundingly faithful God is, do you, know, do you honestly know what I feel? Anger. Frustration. Resentment. Bitterness. It's not fair. Isaac doesn't deserve this. Just look at how much he's sinned against God. Just look at how serial a sinner he is. This guy is a spiritual dropkick. He has not fought his sin. He has not worked on his sanctification. He has not installed covenant eyes. He has not joined an accountability group. He has not asked Holly for a one-to-one discipling relationship. There is no evidence of change in this man whatsoever. If anything, There's volumes of evidence that Isaac is a serial sinner of criminal proportions. And you go, why? Why in the world would God bless him with such a superabundant grace? Don't you hate it? Don't you absolutely hate it when you see someone who's behaved so badly and yet be so blessed? Doesn't it frustrate you somewhere in your heart where you see someone who flaunts their wealth get that great big new house? Where you see someone who idolizes their career get the promotion? Where you go online and you see that person who is like, my gosh, that person was so desperate, and then now they're engaged, and you're like, even them? And you think God's grace feels almost as criminal as our sin. But real grace will always anger the self-righteous. Real grace will always anger the self-righteous. You see, friends, we will only respond to grace with anger if we don't see ourselves as that serial sinner that we are. Unless we're able to say, there, but for the grace of God go I, God's grace will always be offensive and unfair to us. But the moment we see ourselves as those deeply serial sinners, the recipients of grace from God, we will then be able to look at others and rejoice in the grace extended to others just like us. You see, you might wonder, why would God bless someone like Isaac? Why would he bless someone so undeserving? And the answer is right there in verse 24. I am the God of your father Abraham. 
Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring. Why? Because of my servant Abraham. Did you get that? Why does God bless someone as undeserving as Isaac? It's not because of Isaac. In fact, it's entirely in spite of Isaac. It's all because of Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham and is on account of that promise to Abraham that he keeps that promise to Isaac. God shows mercy to one person entirely on account of another. God forgives one person not because of what they did, but because of what someone else did for them. And I wonder if that sounds at all familiar to you. You see, friends, God said to Isaac, I will bless you. And multiply your offspring because of my servant Abraham. God says to us, I have blessed you and forgiven your sins because of my son Jesus. God shows mercy to us entirely on account of Jesus. God forgives us not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Gosh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're exploring what it means to follow Jesus, can you see just how different Jesus is from everyone and everything else in our world? Karma says you get what you deserve. The gospel says Jesus got what you deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve condemnation. We deserve rejection for our all-too-familiar, serially inability to trust the Lord. That's what Jesus took for us. He got what we deserve. And so we don't have to be afraid anymore. I mean, God said to Isaac, don't be afraid. And we don't have to be afraid of a life without love, a life without acceptance, a life without forgiveness. We don't have to be afraid of judgment, of condemnation, or of even death, because God blesses us all because of Jesus. And can I say, guys, if you really get that in your heart, if you really get grace into the marrow of your bones, how could you not then start to respond in faith? How could you not then start to live a life that honors God? How could you not then want to trust Him more and more and more? Did you notice in verses 17 to 22, Isaac starts to change He doesn't hit back at the herdsmen of Gerar. He trusts the Lord to make space for him and his family. And in verse 25, he calls on the name of the Lord. And he doesn't do these things in order to be blessed by God. No, he does these things in response to the superabundant grace of God. You see, friends, I want you to see that this glimpse of Isaac's faithfulness helps us see Change is possible. We don't have to be serial sinners stuck in that tragically familiar cycle of sin. We don't have to live in that groundhog day of faithlessness or be trapped in that toxic relationship with fear. We don't have to return to those besetting sins or relationships that dishonor the Lord. We can be free to live with faith in God. 
but it's only when we first see the astounding faithfulness of God. It's only when we first look back and see his super abundant grace in Jesus. I want to say to you guys here, if you find yourself trapped in that same old sins, whatever they might be, gripped by those age-old fears, please don't run away from God in shame thinking that he will not take you back. Run towards him in faith and have your heart transformed by his grace. Friends, Genesis 26 shows us like father, like son. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. In the face of an all-too-familiar crisis, Isaac makes the very same tragically familiar response as his father. He doesn't trust God with his fears. Instead, he keeps running back to that same old sin, the sin of his father. And so do we. But here's the good news. Isaac is not the only son who is like his father. There is another son. Another son who is just like his father. Full of grace. Full of mercy. Worthy of our trust. So friends, in the face of fire, of famine or flood, against those crises that threaten to derail our lives and destroy our faith, when our relationships break down, when sickness strikes, when fear takes hold, I want you to know that you can hold on to Jesus, the gracious Son of a gracious God. Who am I? Isaac shows us we are great sinners. Who is God? Jesus shows us he is an even greater Savior. Let me pray. God, we come before you with all our fears, all our insecurities, that constant thought that you are not enough, the fear that you will not provide, the thought that following you and trusting you with our lives just isn't worth it. And God, we're so afraid. We're so afraid that if we trust you, then it won't be worth it. That if we trust you, our lives will be over. That if we follow you, it just won't work out. But God, forgive us of the times where we've sought to take the shot. Trust ourselves. God, we know we're mucking it up. So give us the strength. Help us look back. Help us see your astounding faithfulness and gripped by that picture of how trustworthy you are. Help us trust you with our whole lives, no matter how hard it might be, and so experience the grace and blessing of God that following you is always worth it. Amen.